back to Breaking Through with me, Kristen Rao Finkbeiner. We have a show, a show for you this week. You are going to love it. We start out talking about how you can run for office or how you can get a mom in your life to run for office. And we give you tons of great tips on running for office and getting friends, families, and neighbors who'd be great running for office so we can build a country that truly reflects and respects us all. After that, we dive into what's happening in journalism and disinformation, tips for you to address and fight back against disinformation, and then we move to talking about Georgia. The election is still going in Georgia. How can you help get out the Georgia vote? We are here for you with answers. And then we close the show talking about the power of you to help make sure that everyone has a chance to decide if, when, and how many children we have. We're going to jump right in with our first guest. We are joined right now by a very, very, very special and powerful guest, Luba Gretchen Shirley of Vote Mama. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm really thrilled that you're here because Vote Mama is powering up. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about Vote Mama and how they can get involved? Yes, absolutely. Um, So the Vote Mama is... We are normalizing what it looks like to run as a mom. I ran for Congress in 2018 when my older children were just one and three and immediately realized why we don't have more moms in office. So I launched Vote Mama Pack first, and we endorse, coach, fund, and mentor Democratic moms with children under 18 running from school board to Senate. We get involved early, and we really get very involved with our candidates. We think that it is... Somebody asked me once how many moms you need to get elected to feel successful. And I said, honestly, it's not the number of moms. It's normalizing what it looks like to run and to serve as a mom. We launched the foundation about a year after that. We conduct research, groundbreaking first of its kind research on the political participation of moms across the country. We are looking at the structural barriers that hold moms back from running and serving. And we are working on legislative solutions to break those down. About Six weeks ago, we launched our third entity. This is our membership arm, and this is Vote Mama Lobby, so that moms across the country can get involved, can participate, can learn how to work with us to elect these incredible moms who are running across the country and can work with us on legislation that we're passing. It gives them a place where they can connect, where they have a safe community to build, and where they can learn to build their political power. It is really isolating to be a mom in this country and it's really isolating to run as a mom in this country and vote mama lobby is connecting these moms and allies across the country to to make it a little easier yeah absolutely but how can people get involved so everybody listening is like hello i want to be part of vote mama i want to run for office if people yes. want to run for office, how do they get involved if you want to run for office you go to votemamapack.org and you sign up, you can fill out an application. We have just gone through a crazy uh, endorse, not endorsement, crazy election season um, where we supported almost 200 moms running across the country, but we will start endorsement interviews again next year uh, in 2023. So you can sign up on votemamapack.org. You can follow the work on our foundation at votemamafoundation.org and you can get involved at votemamalobby.org. If you want to download the app that we've just recently launched, you can text lobby to 741 one. And you can also just go to the app store and search Vote Mama. I love it. Now, if people are thinking about running for office and they happen to be a mama right now listening, what should they be doing? <clears throat> what should they be doing? They should be getting involved in Vote Mama because I will tell you, having that mama's network, the old boys network is alive and well. When a man decides to run for office, he calls his friends, they all max out, they understand it. It's really easy to figure out how to run and to get into to tap into that old boys network. When a mom steps up to run, especially a mom with young children, 
she's usually immediately discredited. Donors don't take her as seriously. The press doesn't. Voters don't. Having that mama's network, having that connection to other moms who are doing it across the country makes it so much easier. It gives you the emotional support, the political support. Those connections make a huge difference. So what you should be doing, I will tell you, I mean, there are a million things you should be doing, but I'll tell you the biggest lesson I learned running for Congress is that it's not as hard as it seems and that members of Congress are not as smart as they seem. I, that was it, was, it was honestly the biggest takeaway. I ran against a 30 year incumbent who, you know, was more than twice my age. And I remember the first time I debated him and he didn't know the issues as well as I did. He didn't care. And that's what I, that's what I hear from moms across the country. There are so many women who who don't think that they're qualified enough or that they're ready, I will tell you, as long as you can read and you can talk to people and you understand what's going on in your community, you are more than ready. That's it. It's not rocket science. It's just hard work. So if you are thinking about running, if there's a particular issue that is bothering you and you think you can do a better job than your current representative, run. Start raising the money. Start talking to people in your community. Start to build your network. Contact us and just do it. It's really it's the best thing I ever did other than have kids, I will tell you, but it's also the craziest thing. You have to be slightly crazy to run for office, but those are the good, crazy kind of people. So I think you should just run if that's what you want to do. Good trouble. We're looking for good trouble here and good crazy. So speaking of which, when you run for office, listeners, because we're talking when here, um, you don't have to run for Congress the first time. There is a great need right now, actually, for people to run for a school board, which is very local. We need school board. We need local city council. We need county council. We need state legislatures in the House and the Senate. And we also need Congress. But really, when you run for something, it doesn't have to start as running for president of the United States of America. Can you talk a little bit about the need for candidates at the school board and local levels? Yes. We we need so many school board members, good school board members. Our school boards are under attack. Moms for Liberty, the Proud Boys are absolutely attacking our school boards and our school board members. They're showing up on the ballots themselves. They're showing up at school board meetings and they're screaming and yelling at our school board members, at students. If you look at the makeup of American school boards, 90% are white. The vast majority don't have children in the district. Many people will look at school boards and they'll think, I'm gonna use this, it's an easier seat to win, I'll use it as a jumping off point to my next political move. We don't have enough advocates for students on the school board. And we have governors, we have large groups, we have people across the country who are pouring resources and the time into these school board seats. We need to make sure that we have really good advocates who have the resources to actually run for school board races. You look at what's happening. We have people in this country who are trying to erase curriculum that has to do with slavery, institutional racism, the Holocaust, the existence of queer people. The need for school board members has never been greater. And our school board members, out of every woman that we have supported running for office, the school board members are the ones who are the most attacked. So it's not an easy thing to do to run for school board. It actually might be easier to run for Congress emotionally. But to run for school board is critical. And if anybody is listening to this and wants to run, please contact us and we will be happy to work with you. Yeah. And I just want to lift up what you're saying. Well-funded, I call them hate spaghetti throwing people. Um, because it's a lot of different types of hate. There's anti-Semitism, there's racism, there's sexism, a lot of anti-LGBTQ+, just hate being thrown by the moms of Liberty, for Liberty, whatever they are, they're not Liberty at all. Mm -hmm. um, they are running for the school board, and this is not on accident that they're running for the school board. When Donald Trump initially lost, Steve Bannon, his strategist, 
said the way to take back America is through the school board because they know that mom voters are key, right? And so they're using hate spaghetti to propel forward voter suppression laws, hundreds of them at the local level to give them legs to propel forward really, really, really horrible tactics aimed at making sure our votes aren't counted and that we are living out of fear of something that isn't there in the first place and um, not looking at what moms really need, which is paid family medical leave, affordable childcare, a monthly child tax credit check. It is access to our own bodily autonomy, being able to choose if, when, and how many children we have. It's all of the proactive, positive things that we need. So they are trying to flip the frame to turn our nation toward hate. And we are saying no way. And one of the key ways to say no way and to say every vote must count, you may not destroy our democracy, is to run for school board. It's really a lot bigger impact than many people think. Agreed completely. And if you look back at the 2008 elections, the Tea Party went after school board races and a very concerted effort. They had a strategic plan. They went after school board races and they took a lot of they took over a lot of those seats. And then those people ran for higher office. Yeah, it's big deal. School boards matter. They're critical. And we need really good people there who actually have kids in the district who represent, who look like the rest of their community. Representation matters. To have someone who actually represents the community, who understands the needs of the community, who is there to make sure that students are getting the resources that they need and they're not just there for political agenda, that's what we need at the school board level. So people, we know the November 8th election just ended. Now we hope you take a little break from politics, take a deep breath, maybe have a snack, I'm very into snacks. And then think about running for office. And if you don't know yourself that you are ready to run for office, I bet you know somebody who would be spectacular. And so studies show that women in particular, it takes at least seven asks of people asking them to run for office to get them to run. So if you don't want to run yourself, identify somebody in your community who needs to run for office, then identify seven people in addition to you, to ask them to run for office and create that seven people into a kitchen cabinet and then say, hello, we have a plan for you. We are your kitchen cabinet. We want you to run for office. Also, snacks. We have a snack plan. This is real. If you're running for office and you have kids, you need somebody to help out with dinner deliveries from time to time. This is a real thing. Can I tell you, I literally, I I had this conversation and there were a number of women who sat me down and they're like, you're going to run, you're going to do it your way. Everything is going to be different. We're going to make meals. We're going to have this whole meal chain. We're going to help. I will tell you, if you're going to say that, please actually do it because we didn't have that. Everyone promised that. And I had two babies and I was working 18 hours a day and we did not have people making meals. So I love the idea of saying that, make sure you actually do it. And I will I will add a caveat here. If you are a mom with young kids, you have to be asked like 25 times. If you are a woman without young children, maybe it's seven times, but literally any mom with young children, 25 people, get 25 people to go to her and say, what can we do right now to convince you to run? When people came to me and asked me that question, the answer was childcare. Yeah, I mean, childcare, food, so yes. It could be 25 people on your kitchen cabinet. It could be seven people on your kitchen cabinet. Your kitchen cabinet is to think about brainstorming who can donate money. It's to brainstorm how to make sure the candidate can live through the running for office and their children. (laughs) It's really um, fun, though. Like you said, running for office is fun and helping somebody run for office is fun. So I think that's one of my key messages here today to you listeners is that you don't have to run yourself to change the world. 
and you can help somebody run and that can help change the world. Either one, perfectly fine. Both are needed. And that when more of us are represented, when our contributions, our needs and ourselves are represented and reflected in our elected bodies, then we all do better. And democracy isn't something just to the fact that we're talking about this just weeks after an election. Democracy isn't something that is one and done. Democracy is something that works when we're constantly engaged and, you know, our country changes and evolves and we're a dynamic democracy of engaged people. So we're excited about the break and the snack in between, you know, a couple of weeks. <laughs> but we need to get moving already to really help save and protect our democracy and our kids. And what are your thoughts on that? Do you have any thoughts on that whole like democracy is never done? And that's a good thing because when Demo it's done, we're done. No, democracy is never done. And it's also, I think, the biggest takeaway is also that politics is personal. There are a lot of people who think, oh, politics, it's a dirty word, and I don't know how to get involved, and it's overwhelming. Politics is completely personal. It influences every aspect of your lives. Every time I would talk about childcare, paid family leave on my campaign, somebody would always say, you should ignore the women's issues and stick to the bread and butter issues. And it would infuriate me because before the pandemic, we were losing $57 billion a year because of the lack of childcare. Politics and who we elect and who actually has a seat at the table affects everything. We are the least safe industrialized country to give birth in and to be born in. We have childcare that's more expensive than college. We're one of six countries without paid family leave. And one in four of us go back to work 10 days after giving birth. We have policies that fail women and that fail children because we don't have enough moms in office at every decision-making level. We have only 7% of our Congress members are moms. Only 5% of our state legislators are moms. So democracy is never done. And it's also incredibly personal. And that's that's really why we launched Vote Mama Lobby to help. You know, we have the pack, we have the foundation. We want to give moms bite-sized pieces of activism that they can do. You're talking about the snack and the rest. It's so important because if you go full speed all the time, you will burn out. So Vote Mama Lobby is going to give bite-sized pieces of activism, ways that you can get involved that fit into your busy schedule, that you can learn how to get involved in politics and build your political power. So I completely agree with you. Yay! So can you share with listeners again, just really briefly, we have like 30 seconds left, how to get involved. Yes. Follow Vote Mama Lobby on Instagram. So at Vote Mama Lobby on Twitter, we're at Vote Mama Pack and text Lobby to 74121. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And what about running for office? That's different than Vote Mama Lobby. How do you get involved with that? You can just go to VoteMamaPack.org and you can fill out our endorsement application. I love it. I love it. I love it. I like that you get to fill out the endorsement application right away. So people, yeah. What if you just want training? We don't do training. We only train the candidates that we endorse. So we do mentorship and we do coaching with our current candidates. But there are so many incredible organizations like Vote Run Lead that do training for like a larger scale. But we really focus on the candidates that we endorse. I love that. That makes perfect sense. So people, there is a whole constellation of people supporting you if you want to run for office. Get involved, stay involved, and we are here for you. All of us, we're here for you. We need a new generation of leaders rising. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for all you do. Thank you so much, Kristen. Have a great day. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. We'll be right back with our next guest talking about disinformation and how to fight back with real journalism. We'll be back in just a brief moment. Powered by Moms Rising. We are joined right now by a guest you are going to love, 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 love 
hearing from Liz Robbins of Define American. Welcome, Liz. Thank you, Kristen. Happy to be here. You have spent a long time writing about immigration policy reform and sports and for lots of different outlets from the New York Times to many more. Right now, you have a recent report out that everyone should read. What are the top topics in the recent report? So Define American uh, is an organization that works with media to humanize the narrative around immigration. So we're not advocates for immigrants or immigration, but we're advocates for responsible journalism and also uh, film and TV, how immigrants are portrayed. So I want to get that straight. But what we did with this was research local news in one state. North Carolina, a swing state, to see how the local news covered immigrant communities. The short answer, not so great, but also there were some really encouraging models. So they, uh, what we found was that there are not enough people covering it. It was almost an expendable beat. And it was heavenly, heavily Latinx instead of um, profiling and working into their, their reporting about Asian Americans and Asian immigrants, because they make up a third of this state. In North Carolina, immigration is huge, and the immigrant population has doubled in 20 years. And so this is a movement that we are seeing. It's a trend we are seeing across the nation, and we wanted to see how one state actually covers it. And what I will say that's good, collaborations. So you're seeing um, efforts between bilingual organizations and outlets like a newspaper, a Spanish newspaper, online and in paper, coordinating and collaborating and sharing a reporter with a radio station, for example, NPR. And then you're seeing a TV station where both the Spanish news with Telemundo and Charlotte works in partnership to share sources with WSOC in um, the ABC affiliate which is so fascinating because they learn from each other. So we offer great tips for news leaders to diversify their coverage and make it more inclusive because here's the key. At the end of the day, it's just good business to include as many people in your community as possible. That is so true. And one of the things that we see is that far-right extremist Republican candidates in many states have been using immigrants as a political football in really harmful ways. But I think there's a new report saying that that use of immigration as a political football bounced back and really was not helpful to those far right extremists. As I'm, I'm, I'm really, you know, it shouldn't be right to have hate help your candidacy. We are seeing a lot of hate right now. And I, and I love that you did the sports analogy and we see political football. I would also go with the baseball analogy because I'm a huge Phillies fan. So I was watching the World Series and you couldn't see it on Fox without seeing messages of invasion and immigrants are invading. And that was pretty prevalent in Arizona. Uh, you know, midterms uh, showed a lot of different results, but one thing it showed in Arizona is that uh, the voters were well-informed and they rejected both uh, in the Senate race with Mark Kelly winning over Blake Masters and also in the governor race with uh, with Ms. Hobbs beating Ms. Lake. And so we actually saw that that rhetoric as you said, bounce back or actually was a real fumble. We'll see what yeah, happens. There you go. That was better. It was a fumble. 
Yes, I was waiting for that one. But we'll see what happens in 2024. But but what I saw beyond politics, I thought this was a victory for local news. Because you could see, I, I mean, I love to take credit in the journalism industry for it. But I think the voters, as I said, are more informed. And that's what you know, journalists need to be doing and it just showing what's factually correct, what's not, and where the myths are and the stereotypes and the criminals and invaders or immigrants as victims. No, immigrants are exactly like all of us because all of us at some point, unless we are indigenous, we're immigrants. So this is something we really have to remember. And what I'm trying to work with journalists and with editors is to really say, okay, how do we tell these stories in a way that makes people understand their neighbors? And so let me go back to sports. You integrate, you integrate your coverage. You write about soccer. We we profiled um, this great story about a cricket league in North Carolina full of Indian uh, immigrants in the research triangle and how they brought economic prosperity to the area. But, you know, you, you tell stories that cut across all different sections and stories that appeal and make people relate to who their neighbors are. I love that direction because we are all together in this country. And what's interesting, one thing that you said that about myths, which I think is really important to raise, is analysis actually shows that people who are recent immigrants are less likely Exactly. To be criminal activity. This is FBI analysis, not Kristen analysis. <laughs> so FBI analysis says that people who are recent immigrants are less likely to be part of any criminal activity at all. That's really important. Other analysis, including by our own Border Patrol, has found that there is actually in the past couple of decades has been net negative migration over our southern border. There is no invasion. It's actually an invasion of the opposite direction. There are more people in the United States of America moving south in most years than there are people in the countries that are south of us moving north. And I think that's really important because one of the things that's so stark to me is how much disinformation is being spread about immigrant communities. And we can look around and see immigrant communities have really held us together to a large degree in an outsized way through this pandemic. Essential workers, medical workers, healthcare workers, really holding us together, scientific workers, natural disaster workers, you know, holding our country together through this pandemic. And we just have not really, I don't think, given the respect to that work, to that part of our democracy um, that it is deserved. Do you have any thoughts on that? I'm, I agree with you on that. Uh, certainly living in New York City, which was the epicenter of the pandemic in the very beginning, we, we saw how um, the pandemic workers and first line workers, uh, health and safety and food delivery people, that, that was really what was keeping New York City together. Um, but I also think that if you look at what happened in the pandemic, it was a really critical time for good news operations to come forward. And what I mean by good is that news organizations that served communities that perhaps didn't speak English. So again, I'm thinking about what happened in North Carolina. These two new organizations, the television station that was a local Telemundo affiliate, they were broadcasting in Spanish. They broadcast the state health department in Spanish. 
and that they were finding stories and broadcasting and informing their, I wouldn't say constituency, but people of all immigrant types who spoke Spanish. It was a public service. Public service journalism really rose during the pandemic because there was an urgent need. And I don't think, um, you know, going back to your earlier point about immigrants who are recent immigrants who do not commit crimes, that's actually across the board. It's recent, it's current, it's, these are stats. And I'm so glad that you brought that up because it is a big myth. But I want to be careful, right? We say we we don't want to get into the good immigrant and the bad immigrant, the the people who help our society, because immigration is really complex, Kristen. And, you know, at times if people do commit crimes, it happens and it is responsible journalism to understand why, how and what the implications are. But having reported during family separation and being in New York City during this, I think that that will haunt the Trump campaign will also be a very big point uh, when people remember uh, going to vote in 2024 and they will remember because of journalists. Yeah, that's true. And let's remind people right now, this is a good moment to remind people. So under the Trump presidency, despite international amnesty laws saying that people had a right if they were under threat or duress in the country of origin for amnesty and asylum in the United States of America. Despite that, people were purposely separated, moms from babies, families separated, sometimes not even tracking where the children were going separate from the parents. In oh, fact, no, thousands of children just separated from their parents against, again, international and national law. And when, in fact, uh, we had an analysis by the federal government. They found that more than 80% of the people at our southern border at that time when Trump was in office would have qualified for amnesty if the proceedings had been allowed to go forward. So it's a complete opposite and defiance of the federal law and of what our country stands for, right? And that's about persecution. Yeah, it's awful. So what is your take? I just wanted to remind okay. you about what happened yeah. under Trump. I was like, this is a perfect moment. Well, you know, this is Moms Rising. And I wanted to really highlight this because I saw mothers and also fathers really tormented by the separation that went on. So one quick thing with amnesty, I know there's a, that word, you know, we think about it with Reagan. <laughs> he was actually the last president. Um, it is similar, but it's asylum seeking. And that is the right. People have the right to seek asylum from another country, uh, and unlike refugee status, um, asylum seeking, you have to declare it when you get to the border and when you cross. So this can be at a legal point of entry. You can declare asylum up to one year after coming in the country. This is legal. And what they did, what the Trump administration did, was a deterrence program. They denied it for a very long time. And I think the best article on this was written by my former colleague, Caitlin Dickerson at the Atlantic now. And it's just a scathing, like 40,000 word recreation of what happened with family separation. But this is what goes back to the idea of relatability. We are all children, mothers, 
aunts, uncles, and to do something so cruel. That was the point of a lot of the immigration policies. And we may see that again. Uh, Stephen Miller was the architect of those policies uh, for President Trump. And he was the person behind some of the ads uh, that were running during the World Series. And this is really what we're, we are still experiencing xenophobia and disinformation, anti-Semitism. There is a lot of hate. And a journalist is not trying to uh, debunk, but they're trying to inform their readers or their viewers or their listeners of how to make the proper decisions. And you, how do you do that? You reach them where they're at. Absolutely. You're a mother, you're a father, you're a child, or you're an athlete, or you're a businessman. Journalists need to understand their communities and understand their audiences. And I am very hopeful that local news will carry this going forward. Yeah, local news is so powerful and has such a powerful opportunity to help protect democracy. Because one of the things behind a lot of this hate, not all of the hate, but behind a lot of this hate is voter suppression, voter yes. intimidation, making sure that people are thinking either their votes didn't count, election deniers, which is really democracy deniers people. We already have seen one certain candidate for president who has just recently stepped forward, Donald Trump, when the first things he did was say that we can only have paper ballots that can be counted on the same day. Listen, that does not solve any problems in our democracy. In fact, when we've done independent analysis, there are no vote counting problems in our democracy. And importantly, there are no overvoting problems in our democracy. I have to tell you, I spend about 25 hours of every 24 hour day leading up to the election, just trying to get people to vote. We're most certainly not able to have a problem of more people voting than they should. We have a problem of, you know, fewer than 50% of the people who are registered to vote voting in the first place. So these are made up disinformation problems, made up hate with the intention of attacking our democracy and denying your vote listeners. So this is about you, even if you don't think it's about you. I'm just saying this, this is about all of us. It's about you, it's about me, it's about us, it's about our democracy. It's about us being able to create the vision for the better future together through our voices and our votes. And some segments of the population currently led by Donald Trump saying, no, you can't, it's my way or the highway. We're gonna just deny your votes, deny the elections. So I wanna thank you for being on. Thank you for all you do. And I would love to have you on again because this is so important, really getting at the heart of disinformation and giving people information. Thank you, Kristen. Terrific talking with you today. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. We'll be right back talking about Georgia, getting out the vote. The election continues. We have tips for you. Finer, powered by Moms Rising. We are joined right now by the one, the only, the super Monifa Bandele of Moms Rising. Welcome, Monifa. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're on because I want to talk about Georgia. We just had an election, people. We had an election that was incredible. There were more people turned out to vote than anyone ever historically expected. 
and also the amount of candidates who supported truth and who supported justice and freedom, who actually made it through into Congress was a lot higher than most people expected. And we're not done. Something's happening still in Georgia. Can you let people know a little bit about what's happening in Georgia and why we're not done yet in Georgia? <laughs> well, first of all, shout out to everybody in Georgia, especially all the moms that turned up in record numbers on Election Day, but also early voting in Georgia actually exceeded early voting in 2020, which was already a record high number for 2020. And so the race in Georgia for the U.S. Senate is so close that it has gone into a runoff. This runoff is coming up on December 6th. And what we're seeing from our members in Georgia, from partners who are based in Georgia, is that everyone is really, really fired up to volunteer and get out the vote a second time. But here's the thing. The last time Georgia had a runoff from Election Day, they had a whole extra five weeks. Like, did you hear that? Like five weeks have been has been shaved off <laughs> of the runoff window. So not only are people just, you know, knocking doors, making phone calls, uh, texting, getting on the radio and talking to get out the vote. We also have like the shortest window ever to get moms back out a second time. Yeah, I mean, it is such a short window. I really don't like how short it is because people are busy. People have holidays going on. People have end of school year things going on. People have all kinds of things going on. So what's your advice to two people? I have two groups of people that need advice. One, what's your advice to people in Georgia about this December 6th election? But then two, what's your advice for people outside of Georgia? So let's start with in Georgia. What's your advice to people in Georgia? <laughs> My advice to people in Georgia is that if you can vote early and vote in person, Right. So early voting right now starts on November 28th. It may possibly start a day or two earlier. There's some amazing advocacy groups trying to open it up earlier. But if you can, if it's at all possible, vote in person um, during early voting or on, on election day. And if you can't, because we know sometimes you can't, sometimes you're out of town, sometimes you don't have that kind of job, um, please make sure to request your absentee ballot by November 28th. Uh, that's the last day from which you can request a ballot and get it in. But actually, as you're hearing this, if you know you can't vote in person, request that absentee ballot right now. Because the window is so short that, you know, the fear is that they'll be, you know, fighting and challenging and litigation on the day of because maybe people didn't get their absentee ballots in time, in, in enough time to get them back. So definitely go ahead and request that if you know you can't vote in person. Absolutely. And you can request that by Googling absentee pellet state of Georgia. I did it myself. It did come up. Just make sure when you Google that, that you have the .gov in there, that you're not going on to some spoof site. So you want something that ends with the URL .gov. And then at Moms Rising, we have a great um, little kind of widget on our website that allows you to put in your address and it gives you all the information you need about how and where to vote and options. And that is www.momsrising.org forward slash vote 22. So forward slash vote 22 after momsrising.org and you can find out how and where to vote in Georgia. Now, if you don't live in Georgia and you're not voting in Georgia, but you're really, really, really excited about Georgia, how can you help get out the vote in Georgia? Because a lot of people need information about how to vote. 
Oh, I'm so glad you asked. There's so many amazing opportunities to help get out to vote. I mean, you can definitely go and visit uh, websites like Black Voters Matter. Also, you can visit fairfight, fairfight.org. They have and are running um, trainings almost every day to train people to do phone banking and texting voters in Georgia. You can also do your own little outreach program too. If you have friends and family in Georgia, give them a call. Make sure they have a plan to vote. You know, a lot of times we we see news go by that we need to vote on a particular day. This is not a regular election day. And sometimes just that question of, you know, on so-and-so, what is your plan on December 6th in between your appointment and going to work and or picking up kids? Uh, to get to the polls. Do you need a ride? You know, do you need some assistance? Um, do you know the times of the polls? So it's really important just to reach out to our loved ones who are there and make sure they have a plan. Yeah, and I feel like, what do you think about, if you don't know a lot of people in Georgia, should people, or would it be helpful for people to maybe like put up on their social media, hey, Georgia, did you know you need to vote again on or before December 6th? Thank you. <laughs> I feel like we need to add the thank you. <laughs> it's so good. We, we're going to have to thank Georgia, I think, every year. We have to thank Georgia in 2020. We have to thank Georgia in January of 2021. Uh, we're going to have to thank Georgia um, this year as well, because it's and it's not easy. You know, I really hope that people who are listening down there know know that how how difficult it is. I mean, one of the reasons why the window for early, for the runoff is so short right now is because of how the voting laws have been changing to basically make it more difficult to vote. You know, we call it these voter suppression laws that were put in place uh, really as a backlash, the tremendous power that Georgians and folks all over the country, especially our Moms Rising members, demonstrated in 2018 and in 2020 and in 2021. And so you start to see things like a decrease in opportunity and number of days to be able to go and cash your ballot. So it's really important right now that we get out so we can start to move that needle back, Kristen, right? So we can start to expand early voting in more states, make sure the window is, is longer for runoffs so that we can make sure that everyone, especially people who have, you know, a lot of care responsibilities, um, people who have a lot of work responsibilities, we know um, a lot of folks don't get off for election day, can have their opportunity to cast their vote. So important. What is your favorite thing about voting? Like, why should people vote? <laughs> I, I'm inspired by so many different things, but very recently, an amazing actor, Anjanu Ellis, you guys should Google her and look her up. She did her own interpretation of Fannie Lou Hamer's speech. Uh, at the at the DNC conference back in the convention back in the 1960s. It was so powerful. And my favorite thing about voting is when I go into the into the polling site, it's almost like I can feel my ancestors and my elders smiling. I can like feel that warm energy of them saying, yes, we made a way for you to be able to come and and raise your voice and decide your political leaders. And we're happy we did that. And I'm just so happy to give that to them. Like, yes, yes, you did this. You made this way, you made this path. And then my second most exciting thing is bringing my children to vote. So it's like a, it's like a nice, happy sandwich. Um, I feel the warmth and the smiles of my elders and ancestors. And then I love bringing my daughters to the polls. I love it too. I love voting with kids. And that's something that a lot of people don't realize. So a lot of people think, okay, it's time to vote. 
I need to get a babysitter. I need to get childcare. I need to do something with my kids that is not bringing them to vote. But voting with kids can be one of the most fun things. You can either go on this voting field trip. You can have your music, your voting music. Um, today, my voting music is R-E-S-P-E-C-T, I'm feeling. Um, <laughs> Um, and you can, you know, maybe get a special snack on the way back, right, from voting. Or you can vote on your kitchen table if you're voting absentee or vote by mail. And you can do Googling together with your kids. You can do like it, like a pop quiz, like a game show to find out what's happening with the candidates. And you can have coloring pages. Moms Rising happens to have those. Just go to www.momsrising.org forward slash moms vote. You can get coloring pages. You can get games to do with your kids. It is so much fun. And when we do this, we are also raising future voters because we still don't have even 50% of our electorate who are registered to vote voting. We need more voters to have more democracy. When we all vote, we win. We get the people represented more than the corporations. So our votes are so important to lifting everyone. And, and do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I also wanted to add, I don't know if this happens to you or any of the listeners, um, you know, I run into friends while voting. Um, the people who work the polls in Brooklyn are people who I love seeing year in and year out, you know, multiple times a year, because there's always like a primary and then a state or local election. And it's really great to build community um, at the polls. But yeah, 50% of all people, you know, who are eligible to vote, do not vote. And we are seeing a huge shift in that. I don't know if people have heard, but Gen Z turned out in record numbers. Uh, this idea that when we take our kids to the polls, they become voters is true. In, in 2020, I'm sorry to say 19, no, we're in the 2020s. <laughs> in 2020, uh, it was the first time that both my daughters were able to vote. They were able to vote in the presidential election. And unlike, I think, when I had my first uh, presidential election I voted in, I can't think of a single one of their peers who also did not vote. You know, there's there is a voting culture that's emerging um, I think we can keep the momentum going with all of the great things that we're doing and partners are doing. And we have to not listen to the pundits in the polls, right? Kristen, we're always talking about that. <laughs> not always right, right? The trends are going in a way that is actually encouraging and it's actually growing the voter base. And so I'm super proud of them. I saw so much in the summer of 2020 about all oh, these young people, they, they protest, but they don't vote. And then they turned out in record numbers in November 2020. And it was like, yeah, but that was a year of protest. Will they do it again? And then they broke those records from 2020, voting even stronger and in greater numbers in 2022. So I believe in our kids. I love that. I believe in our kids too. And I was so thrilled to see those voting numbers. Now, we need more advice from you, Monifa. If you have a teen who is approaching the age of 18 or who is in their 20s, and hasn't registered to vote yet. Do you have advice on getting these younger generation registered to vote? Yeah, a lot of the peer uh, support and peer pressure works, you know, find those kids that are registered and who are voting, recruit them to reach out to their friends. That is the most effective thing, just like the peer-to-peer -peer mom organizing that we do with writing postcards to moms and sending personal text messages to our peers. It just is so much more impactful. It's so much more engaging it works better. And so when we want to reach out to young people, we've got to empower young leaders to lead that charge. And so that's why we work so much also with young organizations, because 
They're the ones that are going to get their peers and their cousins and their sisters and brothers uh, to the polls now that they are young adults, right? When they were kids, parents, we take them with us to the polls and they become voters. And then those kids reach out to their peers and they become voters. So, you know, definitely go to Moms Rising website and join us uh, because maybe you can do some cool phone banking or texting over the next, I guess, dozen or so days. Um, But there's also a lot of ways to build community and talk about how we empower the young people to reach out to even more of their friends. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Manifa, for being on. Thanks for all you do. Thank you for sharing advice on voting and sharing why voting is so important. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Next up, we're talking about bodily autonomy and the ability to choose if, when, and how many children we have and how to make sure every person in America has that choice. We are joined right now by a guest who is a nation lifting leader, a person who inspires us to stay engaged, who brings forward wins for everyone. Fatima Gosgraves with the National Women's Law Center. Welcome, Fatima. Uh, I'm so happy to be here and be with you. I'm really thrilled that you're here because we can talk about something that is so important, and that is the ability to decide if, when, and how many children we have and what just happened in the November 8th elections. We have a situation where for some reason, many pundits said, huh, people don't actually care about bodily autonomy. They only care about the economy. But they kind of seem to have forgot that a basic economic foundation of our lives is being able to decide if we are going to have children. So the voters, did not forget that, did not overlook that. And we just had some big victories. Can you share the big victories? Yeah, I'm so glad that you made that basic point that um, people in this country understand that expanding your family or not expanding your family, that is a giant economic decision. So people who are trying to make it sound like one has nothing to do with the other, I think we're both, you know, operating as a distraction, but also operating out of an old story. What happened, what we saw across the century in states that people might think of as blue states and states that people maybe think of as red states or purple states, every time abortion was on the ballot and people were given an opportunity to directly say whether they wanted to have access to reproductive health care or not, they consistently said, I want that. They didn't like that the Supreme Court overturned Roe. They didn't like that the extreme few were trying to control our lives, our bodies, and take away our freedoms. That's not a popular thing. So we saw that show up again and again, and it was exciting to see. And I hope people learn that lesson. I hope they learn the lesson that we didn't like people controlling our freedom, our reproductive freedoms, and that people will show up 
at the polls. So it was part of the story in Michigan, where many of us believe the referendum on the ballot not only meant that abortion access and reproductive health care access more broadly is secured in the Michigan Constitution, but it also over it also had such a huge effect on the entire election. People turned out they were rejecting the politics that were driving these really, really bad policies. But it we saw it in states that people sort of maybe have a narrow idea of what can happen in Kentucky. People have a narrow idea of what can happen over the summer in Kansas. Um, so whether you're talking about the California initiative or the Vermont initiative, again and again, access to abortion care, reproductive freedom won. It won big time. And when it won, something I think is really important to uplift that you just said, is that Democrats, Republicans, Libertarian, Green Party people, all people across all parties, when you look at polling, actually support freedom to decide what to do with their bodies, right? That's not even a new idea. So here's the thing. For a long time, whenever this issue was polled, if you asked people if they supported Roe v. Wade, if they wanted people to decide whether or not they make their decisions, not politicians, consistently, Roe v. Wade was popular. People didn't want it to be overturned. And the Dobbs decision was deeply unpopular. So pundits who had decided that this didn't matter were not actually reading um, the sentiment. They thought that people would just sit by as our rights were taken away. When, and when given an opportunity to do something about it, people reacted. And that is across party and that is across geography. And I actually think, Kristen, it's consistent with a lot of issues. On the ballot, there were other issues that fared well and mostly better than politicians. I'm in D.C., and I'm super excited that DC passed one fair wage and with giant enthusiasm and energy. And what that means is that over time, tipped workers are going to be able to make a fair wage. That's a giant deal. Or in New Mexico, where there was an initiative around childcare. I, I think we have set ourselves up a reminder that People are telling you the issues that they want to see politicians focus on it. And politicians should listen to that. And they should listen to that. And they shouldn't take the issues that we care about, the most personal issues related to our freedoms, and use them as political footballs, right? I mean, really, I'm going to go a little partisan here, but we saw a really big divide between Democrats and Republicans, with Republicans really putting up blocks to freedoms and no plan for forward solutions, and Democrats coming through with plans for forward solutions. I've been working in politics in some way or another for 923,000 years, and no year has that been so stark that one party has a plan, a solution, and a process, and the other party is just sort of staying there saying, we're going to take away your rights, we're going to take away your ability to care for your children, we're going to block child care, we're going to, you know, I mean, it was, it's ridiculous. I think it was a huge overreach by the MAGA component of the Republican Party, and I think that hopefully that has sent a strong enough message that um, they start to fade into oblivion. <laughs> I'll just say it. Well, I mean, I will say if you look historically, midterm elections usually mean 
that the party who is in power, they get a they get a setback in 2018. You saw a big setback in 2010. You saw a big setback. That's expected that, you know, parties typically plan for that. Here, we're in a situation where the usual expectation that the other party was going to gain tons of seats, it's not playing out. And so you would hope that everyone begins to do some digging and say, why did that happen? Both Republicans sort of asking questions around why did they not win? But also Democrats asking questions around why did they win? I think that post-election, and I know some stuff is still coming in, but that post-election analysis should hopefully be done carefully and with the context of the giant disruption that Dobbs was. People were angry. This is so deeply personal, but a lot of issues are deeply personal, and it is not okay to just tell us that there's nothing you can do about it. Fighting for abortion care, fighting for paid family medical leave, child care, home care, and the child tax credit are winning issues, are what put them in those seats. And then we need them to take action in January. So we need to them to double down on why voters stood up for them in the first place by really pushing for and championing those policies when they take office again in January. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I believe people run for office because they believe that they are someone who can get things done, that they uniquely are the right person to get things done. I, th I think in general, that's what inspires people to run. They they decide that in themselves. They decide that why not me? And then they get to work. And the thing that I have to say for the people who are coming in both into this new Congress and at state levels and at school board levels, you have a tough job because you are coming in at a time where we need you to get to work. We need them to come in with a sprint, with an energy around expanding access and defending against uh, the the protections that people deserve. I I just, you know, this is not gonna be like a, a slow, like let me find my way around the building. Folks need to come in with a sprint. I agree. And guess what, people, if you're listening and you just won a seat in any legislative body, the National Women's Law Center is here for you with data, with policy suggestions. Moms Rising is here for you with priorities from moms. We have you covered. Do you, you want got to share back. <laughs> about how the National Women's Law Center can help any of the many people who may be listening who just won elective office? Well, I hope people know that our experts stand at the ready to help guide with the details of policy, with the research that backs it up, and with the broader base of support that can help to get it done. And that's true with the policies that we're championing at the federal level, but that's also true um, for state for state folks who have just been reelected or newly elected. And there's some states that have shifted power. So Michigan, for example, is going to be a very different place. Minnesota is showing up a very different place. There are things that have probably been on the agenda for a long time where they're going to have opportunity to pass. And we are ready with our partners on the ground to support new folks in these roles. So what gives you hope? We truly, truly, truly at the cellular level have to believe that we will win in order to win. And you are one of the best believers in winning coupled with really strategic hard work. So what keeps you going? Well, this is why I, I love Kristen and Moms Rising because you guys also believe we win, it, we can win. And, and I think it makes a difference. 
I, I will say, I understand that we are in a point in time over a long history. The National Women's Law Center, we actually just turned 50. We're celebrating it this weekend and beyond. And there have been times when we have won giantly. And there have been times when we have had big setbacks. That's what happens in the march towards progress. And so that's not a reason to give up. But the thing in this cycle that gave me the most hope was the way Gen Z turned out in giant numbers with clarity demanding the future that they want. And I got to say, I, you know, as a Gen Z parent and, and, you know, there's lots written about this generation about whether or not they will be engaged or not. I think that they are now telling us that they understand that they have to fight for their future and we owe it to them. We owe it to that next generation to fight alongside them. So true. So well said. We knew this election was not going to be as pundits predicted as soon as we started having massive volunteers coming in to help turn out the vote, way more than we even were able to support. Over 34,000 moms stepped forward to help turn out the vote. And so we were like, hmm, if people are really stepping forward, making time in their lives to help get out the vote, then they're definitely going to vote. So thank you. Thank you to all the moms who not only did a great job raising kids, but, you know, did a great job helping to get out the vote. Do you have any closing words of wisdom moving forward? I just want to say, I feel like this week we all got to practice being a part of our democracy. And our democracy is imperfect and flawed in all the ways. But I hope people understand that that practice work they did this week, that's showing up, that's just the beginning. And I'm going to be calling on all of you, and I know Moms Rising will be too, to keep that practice work, to hold your lawmakers accountable, to speak out when you think something is right or wrong, and then to show up again, to vote again and again, because we need you, we need all of us if we're going to make it through. Agree, agree. Fatima Gosgraves, National Women's Law Center. Everybody join National Women's Law Center, follow National Women's Law Center, support National Women's Law Center, get involved and stay involved. Thank you so much, Fatima. Thanks so much, Kristen. Well, that's it for our show today. Thanks so much for tuning in as we tackle the top topics facing our nation in a way that requires the most boring disclaimer in the history of the planet Earth. Views expressed on this show are those of the individual speakers and should not be attributed to Moms Rising, to this station, or to any news or social media service that may disseminate a recording of this show to the public or to any segment of the public. Boom! We'll catch you next week. Fight for love.